everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies Special Project. Steven Spielberg oeuvre. Uh, this is number, what, four, Matt? This is number five, I think, five? right? Five, shit! Fifth age, I know. This started off as oh a six-episode idea, but I think we're probably going to end up stretching this thing out to more like eight by the time the dust clears. Oh, that's not true. Spielberg is, he doesn't have anything uh, really in the pipeline right now. We're not going to see another Spielberg movie for a, a good two years, right? No, but I mean, if we if we really look at this thing mathematically and we try and keep it to four or five films per episode... Mm-hmm. Then we do five today. The next would be six, Indiana Jones, Tintin, Warhorse, and Lincoln. Uh, mm-hmm. Four, rather. And then the last episode would be Bridge of Spies, BFG, Post, and Ready Player One. And then I kind of think we got to do a post-mortem episode, even if it's oh, a shorty do. after that, right? No, we got to do a ranking. Exactly. We, we, exactly. we love rankings. We're all about rankings here. I agree. And I think that we probably need to make that its own episode so that we Absolutely. don't impinge on, on the last four films. And so... I think this is an eight-episode idea. Sorry, guys. I think you're fucking right. We're That's really going to stretch this thing out. All right. Well, so today, The Fifth Age, which you dubbed The Death of DreamWorks, and it truly was. Yeah. We're going to go through Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, The Terminal, War of the Worlds, and Munich. And this was a particularly prolific time yeah. in Spielberg's career. This is just 2002 to 2005. Five movies in uh, basically four years. Uh, yeah, one sort of wonders if he was feeling especially inspired at this point in his career or if he was just doing his damnedest to try and keep his studio afloat because so much of this is him trying to be as prolific as possible because obviously his are the movies that are going to underwrite a lot of his studio's debts. And these first four movies are all, and we'll get deep into it, of course, but they're all extremely commercial Spielberg in in their own ways. The fifth one, not so much, but that was at the very tail end. I think it was second to last or last actual DreamWorks film. Oh shit, no, it's actually... It's not... uh, It was actually... Munich was a DreamWorks Pictures, Paramount Pictures. Oh, okay. So maybe the Terminal... I think maybe the Terminal was, because War of the Worlds was universal and DreamWorks, right? No, War of the Worlds is DreamWorks with co-production with Paramount and Amblin. Okay. Fun fact. The last solo DreamWorks production... Do you have any guesses? No, you don't. I don't. It's, um, not, it's obviously not a Spielberg movie. 2005, Just Like Heaven with Reese Witherspoon and Mark Ruffalo. Interesting. Wow, that's a good trivia nugget for all you out there. For a second, I was a little uh, offended that you didn't think I could guess it, but you're exactly <laughs> right. There's no way in a million years you could have handed me a blank check. There's no way I could have guessed that. So yeah, if this... I, Even if I had told you it was a John Heater film, it probably would have been your 12th or 13th guess. <laughs> um, so they start with The Peacemaker and they end with Just Like Heaven. Wow. Yeah, that is something. How the mighty uh, rise and fall. Matt, you want to talk just a, a little tiny bit about where Spielberg was coming from when we start this this uh, this this era, this Death of DreamWorks era? When we last left him, he was coming off of AI in 2001, which I think we both agreed is a flawed but fascinating film. Yeah. Uh, ooh, a good alliteration. That's a movie that continues to sort of mature in uh, how fascinating it is with every passing year and just looking back on it and seeing how, how prescient it was about certain things and how kind of philosophically deep it is and the Twin Towers sticking out of the snow and all the uh, weird William Hurt stuff and the Ben Kingsley stuff. I, I haven't revisited that episode that we did in a while, but I seem to remember us both being fans, right? We both like yeah. that movie, even though we both agree that it's not necessarily one of his most rewatchable. Is that fair? Yeah, it's a fascinating movie. It it does it is pretty 
it is pretty long. It is very curious. There are a lot of sort of quibbles I have with it, but it's 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 definitely you know it was one it's one of the only movies he's been a screenwriter on in his work, and it's uh, it's definitely a personal project, and it's super interesting. AI was in two thousand one, so if you count two thousand one, that's you know six movies over the course of four and a half years, which is even more impressive. Absolutely, and um, I wanted to split the last episode in this one up in this manner because originally the minority report was going to be uh in the last group Mm -hmm. but i really really wanted to make sure we talked about minority report and catch me if you can on the same episode because they came out the same year yeah but your point is well taken like basically he jumps straight from artificial intelligence right into minority report and in a lot of ways at least visually almost feels as if this film is taking place in that same universe right same universe different color palette okay fair enough but (laughs) but it sees kaminsky experimenting with all this bleach bypass stuff and this like the bleach bypass the dramatic amount of bleach bypassing and heavy contrast stuff that he sort of starts with Private Ryan, pushes a little bit further in AI, and then he just goes balls to the wall with Minority Report. Like, this is one of Spielberg and Kaminsky's, I think, most visually audacious collaborations. It is a crazy-looking movie. Yes, and uh, for whatever reason, he is super interested in this future world-building at this point. You know, Minority Report is... uh, It it was a pretty big deal at the time, if I remember. It made a fuck-ton of money, and also notable for it being his first-ever collaboration with Tom Cruise. Yes. And we'll get back to him uh, later on in this episode. But I remember seeing Minority Report as... uh, God, it's the summer before we go off to college. Matt. Summer after 2002. Oh, summer after. No. Oh, yeah, 2002. You're right. Summer you're right. after our freshman year. Yeah, I, I remember seeing it at uh, the Seattle Center. Actually, I was home for I was home for the summer, and I saw it at Seattle Center, probably on the IMAX screen. Although this obviously wasn't blown up to IMAX size, but I'm pretty sure that's the theater I saw it in. Nice. I think I saw it at Meridian 16, a terrible, terrible theater. Fair enough. <laughs> you had a theater that's still there, weirdly enough. It, actually, they remodeled it, so it's nice now. It's one of those places where they have the recliners everywhere. So my number, I, I remember loving it as a kid and probably rewatching it a, a fair amount of times during college years and m- maybe soon after, but it's a movie I hadn't revisited in quite a while. The common theme here on this on this podcast. Mm-hmm. I was pretty excited to see it, and it kind of lived up to my expectations on a general level. Visually stunning, fun premise, great sci-fi stuff, a, a good cast of character actors throughout. However, the main plot and the mystery and some of the plot holes left to leave a little to be desired, especially uh, the ending sort of lands with a thud in my mind. Yeah, and I think that that's sort of a recurring theme at least in this, I want to say 21st century Spielberg more so than 20th century Spielberg has really struggled sticking the landing. At least struggled with with final scenes, let's say. Like his movies can can end very well. They can have, they can have extremely satisfying climaxes, but they they seem to struggle a little bit with few exceptions. Munich being, I think, a notable exception with their final scenes or final shots. And this is one of them. I do think that the the final scene is problematic, but we'll get there. Just as like you said to set a little bit of context, coming off of AI, AI is a surprise hit considering what a strange movie it is, but it's Spielberg. Spielberg doesn't, you know, he doesn't make movies that don't make money. So, Minority or uh, AI rather uh, makes about 250 million on a 100 on 100 million budget. Uh, Minority Report budgeted at 102 million, comes out in the summer of 2002 and makes 358, which is a decent hit but not nearly the hit they were expecting considering this was the first Spielberg-Cruise collaboration. 
and it's sure. nothing compared to what their next collaboration would yield. Um, also, interestingly enough, not the number one film at the box office the weekend it came out. Do you happen to know what the film that beat this on the weekend of June 21st, 2002? Holy shit, June 21st, 2002. Disney movie, animated movie. Oh, animated movie. Oh, God. Uh, I have no idea. Lilo and Stitch. Lilo and Stitch. Wow, that's a that's a ballsy thing to do, released on the same day as a Disney animated movie. Counter-programming, I guess. Interesting trivia, they had to reanimate a sequence in that film that featured a plane crash because we're talking we're what we're nine months off of 9-11 when this movie comes out yeah eight months off of 9-11 so there's a there's a, a, a apparently an especially disturbing plane crash you can find it on youtube i think the original like animatic of that sequence they had to re-edit it and reconceptualize it because it was just too close to um to some of that 9-11 imagery and they still make it out in time to beat Minority Report at the box office. And speaking of 9-11, which is going to be something that comes up a lot in this conversation, apologies, it, it has to. This is a movie that a lot of people feel is a reaction to that. And yet this film was basically done, at least principal photography, by the time uh, by the time September 11, 2001 rolled around. So it feels as if it's positioned to be or to be sort of like a, a sociopolitical reaction to that event. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a little bit of like retroactive misconception <laughs> about sure. it uh, in that regard. But a lot of the themes seem to really play into that post 9-11 um, war on terror uh, babysitter state, right? Well, four of the five movies we're going to talk about today have pretty explicit ties to 9-11 yes whether conscious or not exactly 100 percent. i mean i called this age the the death of dreamworks because it's, it's got a nice that's a nice book ending to our last episode but this really is the post this this is the spielberg reaction to 9-11 age of his career you're exactly right all five of these films even though this one is like i said kind of retroactive uh deal explicitly with uh, his feelings about how that event changed this country and changed his outlook on life and maybe even on filmmaking. Yeah, the Babysitting State Patriot Act, I mean, that's pretty well imbued, especially in Minority Port and Terminal, even as saccharine as that movie is, definitely War of the Worlds. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't suspect that was, like you said, the movie was pretty much in the canon and done by the time uh, 9-11 happened. Uh but the themes are still there. I mean, this is uh, this is a Philip K. Dick story. Are you familiar with that story at all? I haven't. I haven't read it. I read it. I read it last year actually because I did a project. Uh, I put together like a PowerPoint presentation, did a lecture about Minority Report and Philip K. Dick. It's interesting. I mean, it's all you know. Philip K. Dick's short stories are always interesting. As usual, the sort of conception is a little bit more interesting than the execution, mm-hmm. which I think is a recurring theme with Philip K. Dick stuff. And as a result, the movie bears very little resemblance to the short story. Um, in the story, he's you know he's sort of middle aged and balding, and he's still with his wife, and he he's, he has children, and he's a little more of kind of a hard drinking detective, more so sure. you know like in the it's like a hard boiled detective sort of yeah yeah it's a little more noirish I'd say than the movie is, and uh, the movie kind of just like takes the the kernel of, like in the book in the story they do have the precognitives, but they're more kind of like mutants they're they're a lot more kind of like the mutants from total recall their brains have basically been mutated or distorted through years of um of like nuclear fallout and stuff Um, and that's significant because this movie was originally set up as a sequel to total recall even though i don't know if that was ever philip k dick's intentionality they originally sold this as a as a sequel to total recall and yonda bont 
uh, was going to direct, and I think uh, Schwarzenegger was originally going to star. Huh, in fact. I'd watch that movie. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, right? <laughs> and uh, and Jan DeMont gets an executive producer credit on this film. So yeah, for the longest time, I mean, this movie was in development hell for many, many, many years. And I think it was Cruz actually who brought it to Spielberg. Like, I think huh. that's how they, because they'd they'd been wanting to work together for, I said it's at least Rain Man, because Spielberg was originally supposed to direct Rain Man. And they'd been searching for a project, and I think Cruz brought this to him at, at some point, and they decided to pursue it. And then Cruz's shooting schedule on Mission Impossible 2 ran over. And as a result, uh, Spielberg was able to work on the script with um, Scott Frank, who was coming off of Out of Sight, and John August, who was coming off of Go and Charlie's Angels. And the three of them were able to workshop the script for much longer than they expected to. And I think that has a lot to do with why the movie has set so many clever ideas and why even though it does sometimes lose its way it does feel like maybe a more narratively innovative Spielberg movie yeah I mean the sci-fi conceptual things in this movie are really cool and really fun but like I said the concept is is a little more interesting than the execution another through line through these five movies and, and this is something I tried to research with Spielberg in his personal life I couldn't find anything that was going on with his kids or with family or with anything but these movies are extremely preoccupied with father-son dynamics and uh, familial broken family type stuff. Yeah, but couldn't you say that that's always been there? Like from the that's, very beginning all the way back to E.T. or Close Encounters? That is always there, but man, these movies really just bang you over the head with it. Yeah, fair. Um, especially this movie and Catch Me If You Can yeah. is is crazy You know, uh, invested in that. And War of the Worlds, of course, too. <laughs> and, and this, you know, you mentioned like this is more of a hard-boiled, noirish thing. I mean, this kind of feels like a as hard-boiled as Tom Cruise can get. Sure. <laughs> almost, right? Yeah. Like, I wouldn't see Tom Cruise as, like, a hard-smoking, hard-drinking anything. That'd be hard to, hard to imagine. Although um, he is a neuroin addict in this movie. He is <laughs> a neuroin addict, the all-time sure. great future drugs. <laughs> yeah, I kind of want to do some neuroin. That looked fun. <laughs> it's an interesting—I I, love—it must be one of the more fun, like, screenwriting um, escapades to— uh, conceptualize a new way of ingesting a drug. It's yeah. like, all right, we've seen intravenous stuff. We've seen people snorting. What if we have this weird little contraption where we have to like inhale and snort and press down on this little button at the same time? Yeah, I, lo- I love that. Be f- I'm sure the prop guys and the screenwriters have a lot of fun uh, coming up with that sort of thing. I have a, I do have issues with this movie narratively, and the third act sort of goes off the rails. I mean, it's an interesting structure, especially at the end, where your protagonist sort of is sidelined during some climactic moments, and you know. He doesn't. He's not even the one who figures out the conspiracy and what's going on, which I think kind of deflates the movie a bit. And you know the whole Christopher Plummer main plot and scheme. You mean Max von Sydow, right? Oh, sorry, Max von Sydow. Yeah, yeah. No. When his name comes out, like that whole thing doesn't really make sense when you sit back and think about it. You know, they tell him to just stay away, and he should have just stayed away. That would have been the easiest way to clear his name, then everything could have reset. But uh, I don't know. Does that stuff bother you? I think it bothered me a lot more watching it now in my 30s than it did when I was, you know, 19 years old. That's interesting. Um, I mean, I I buy the way the movie like sort of struggles with and uh, tries to reconcile the inevitability of it all, right? It's a movie that's asking you if you believe in free will or determinism. If you believe in determinism, then 
he can't stay away. The, the movie keeps asking these questions about what's what's predetermined, right? What what are the precognitives previsualizing, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and if if it's predetermined, then no matter what, he's going to have to be in that room and he's going to have to shoot the guy, which is what the precognitives see, which is what sets the plot in motion. As with other Philip K. Dick stuff like the aforementioned Total Recall or Blade Runner, it asks a lot of really interesting questions. These kinds of sort of populist, quote unquote, mainstream films aren't necessarily really set up to be able to answer questions as well as they can ask them, right? Sure. I mean, one could make the argument that that's movies like in a nutshell. Movies are much better at asking questions than they are at answering them. Yeah. So, yes, the movie ends up kind of twisting itself into knots and it writes itself into a few corners that it can't really weasel out of. Honestly, it's not one of my favorite Spielberg movies, but I do think it is one of the ones that I revisit the most often because I find it to be extremely watchable. I find it to be extremely exciting and inventive. And there's just some amazingly playful uh, set pieces going on here, despite the fact that I agree. I think the third act of this is is kind of a mess. I, I think that this is one of those Spielberg movies that seems to be at like AI seems to sort of be going through a little bit of a, a reclamation at the moment, mm-hmm. I, I feel like for the most part, people are pretty positive about this movie now the way that they weren't necessarily in 2002. Am I wrong about that? No, I mean, I feel like AI has sort of almost risen in esteem nowadays. I mean, there's a lot of people that call it a, would call it a masterpiece now, and I don't feel the same way about Minority Report. No, this uh, this attempts to be much more accessible, for sure. This, this feels like an attempt to be mainstream, to introduce some pretty heavy philo- philosophical stuff in a much more mainstream container. For me, AI is like a, a check-your-watch kind of movie, right? Like it it <laughs> yeah. really goes on. But this movie is propulsive, and it's visually stunning, and it really keeps your attention. And you know, when you have Tom Cruise just running around, that's kind of all you want. Yeah, the tagline of the movie is everybody, <laughs> everybody runs, which is maybe the tagline for Tom Cruise his entire career (laughs) pretty much yeah and you know like i said the supporting cast is fun colin farrell gets to chew some scenery here he's 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 delightful yeah good good cameos here and there pierce stormare i like the whole eyeball stuff yeah no it's definitely it's definitely an enjoyable watch the the concept the the facade is a lot more beautiful than the actual meat of the movie and, and it's not something i would look back on and, and, and call a masterpiece or even one of his his best movies but i it's certainly not something that i i you know i'm, I'm disagreeable towards yeah also significant for how prescient it is regarding uh, the technology that has developed in the last uh, 16 years right Absolutely, yeah. Spielberg put together this famous sort of like think tank summit in Santa Monica, uh, and he brought together all these, you know, futurists and architects and production designers, and and they all got together and then they just basically just brainstormed for like a week, and all the all this stuff, all these ideas went into this Bible that the production uh, that the art department for this film took and kind of ran with, and so much of that, especially a lot of the um, the the advertisement the advertising ideas, right? John Anderton, you could use a Guinness right about now. Um, stuff like that. We're seeing all that stuff develop. You walk through um, a, a big shopping mall today, and that's kind of what billboards are starting to look like, right? They're interactive. Yeah. Even sub- well, I mean that, subway platforms have stuff I mean, like that's that. what Facebook is. Yeah. Those are some of my favorite scenes in the movie. I, I, I think maybe quite possibly my... Well, it's hard to argue with the opening. The opening set piece oh, is so good. unbelievable. Yeah. Second, distant second to that would be when um, when Cruz and Samantha Morton are running through the shopping mall and they're being chased by all the uh, pre-crime guys. 
And she keeps like, you know, take the umbrella, stand here, wait, wait for the balloon man. And then all the advertisements are just constantly scanning them and yelling at them as they're running around in the, in the mall. Yeah. I don't know. It just, it just feels like Spielberg having fun. But speaking of fun, that, yeah, that opening sequence is absolutely unbelievable. The, the, the film can't recover after that. It's just way too, it's just way too exciting and inventive and, and honestly feels like Spielberg kind of like finding a new gear. It's a classically entertaining Spielberg set piece, but it's sophisticated in a way that I think his stuff hadn't been up to this point. Yeah, I mean, there's some adult stuff going on. Uh, there's some maturation that's happening in this era for him, especially, you know, dealing with adult themes, more complex themes, more nuanced than maybe he, he had been used to. Starting um, to dip his toe into sexuality, which we can get to in a couple movies here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, because that opening scene is like explicitly about adultery and stuff, right? Which is usually, you know, usually you think of Spielberg kind of blushing at the thought of that. No, no, he, yeah. uh, he's getting into it. It's yeah. good. All right. Any any final thoughts before we move on to his uh, second movie of 2002? Yeah, I just wanted to talk briefly about the ending and if you had any, if you subscribed to any of the conspiracy theories about it, because... It seems like most people agree that the ending for this film is a problem, that it kind of, it seems to trip at the finish line. Mm-hmm. And there, there's this conspiracy theory that's developed basically since the movie first came out, which suggests that the entire, you know, maybe the last 10 minutes of the movie is basically sort of a Brazil-esque, this is all happening in your head, uh, fever dream. Huh. Do you subscribe to that? Uh, I have not really heard that theory but i i like you know what i'm in for any conspiracy theory so if if, <laughs> the, if if it makes the movie better in retrospect then sure i'm in yeah the idea is that um after he gets he gets captured and gets haloed uh what's his name what's what's the actor who plays gideon from oh brother where art thou and stuff oh tim blake nelson tim blake nelson when he when tim blake nelson you know you're part of my flock now john that basically everything from there on out is a dream because they say when you're haloed, uh, they say it's like dreaming. They say all your your you know your hopes and wishes come true. So basically, if you imagine that it's all happening in his head, he gets his wife back, he gets the bad guy, the precognitives go free and live a live a pleasant life after that. If you if you look at it from that perspective. All right. Maybe it makes it a little more palatable. <laughs> I don't know. I like it. I like that perspective. Just, just thinking out loud. Um, originally, in addition to Cruz, we were supposed to have Damon in the Farrell role. Okay. Uh, Meryl Streep as uh, Iris Hinneman. Okay. Uh, Ian McKellen in the Max von Sydow role. Kate Blanchett as Agatha. And Jenna Elfman as um, Laura, Cruz's uh, estranged wife. Jenna so, Elfman. Wow. Yeah. That's a name she I've not heard flying high there at the turn of the century yeah so but i'm really glad that farrell that colin farrell's in this movie like it's a it's a crazy place in his career you look back and see what he was doing at the time sort of coming into his own as the new it boy yeah um and dating britney spears and you know doing all the crazy shit he was doing you know pre-rehab <laughs> yeah pre-miami vice um but he's he's tremendous in this movie right i wouldn't go so far as to say he steals it from Cruz, but there is a long section of this movie where he really like is owning this film's trajectory. Oh yeah. And he, he goes from being totally insufferable to being really, really interesting and being kind of a brilliant detective. And then he has this amazing LA confidential esque death scene. Yeah, no, his presence is fantastic and he sort of owns every scene he's in. And in retrospect, you realize he was kind of a good guy all along. Yeah. Um, which is, which is pretty, pretty cool. Uh, given the narrative of this movie. Yeah, no, he's, he's terrific. And, yeah, you can see why everyone was going gaga over him at that at that time. And Samantha Morton, also incredible, totally robbed of a Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination for this. I mean, she, digging into a role that there's no way to prepare for, right? 
yeah, yeah. No, she, <laughs> she, she, she picks a direction and she sticks with it and she's great. It's much more fun than the last couple films Spielberg had made, but it, it's a little headier as well, which makes for an interesting viewing. It, it's tonally wildly all over the road. Like there's there's a bunch of like attempts at comedy that fall completely flat. Yeah. And uh, we've discussed how, how he just, he struggles. He struggles so much landing the comedic stuff. And up until this point, I was like, man, just stop trying. That's just, that's not you, dude. You can't, you can't do it. You've got a lot of things going for you. That is not one of them. And then this next film comes along and all of a sudden he is able to sort of land a bunch of breezy comedic stuff that I didn't know he had in him. I mean, I wouldn't call Catch Me If You Can an overt comedy, but I would say it's one of his it's one of his funniest films. I agree with that. One more thing. Oh, you're going to stifle my... I know, that was a great segue. Stifle my segue? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay, go um, There's ahead. a scene in this movie that reminds me a lot of a scene in War of the Worlds, which we'll get to, which mm-hmm. is the, the, the gardening scene and just the incredible amount of exposition given in one scene that seems a little suspect, but it's it's all very convenient. Uh, what, what's her name? I, what's her name? Iris Hinneman, uh, Lois Smith, the great Lois Smith. Lois Smith. Yeah. Would have been an interesting scene, as good as Lois Smith is, would have loved to have seen Meryl Streep in that little cameo role. And yeah, the that scene has to do a lot of heavy lifting where they actually deliver the the title of the film the, pretty much the only time. I mean, it's really just a red herring, right? I mean, yeah. the whole Minority Report thing never even really pans out. No, it doesn't. In that regard, it's kind of just like, oh, it's it's a cool title. It doesn't really have that much to do with where the movie's going, but we like the title. Let's let's, let's run with well, it. Well, I guess it's a big part of uh, Max von Sydow's uh, scheme, right? Okay, okay, fair. Yeah. Do you want to redo your, your segue, Matt? <laughs> Um, Spielberg had been just like struggling with comedy his whole career. Then all of a sudden, out of the blue, here comes this sweet, breezy, romantic, fun, funny little movie that comes out the exact same year as the super heavy, heady Minority Report. This is one of my favorite Spielberg movies. And every time I watch this movie, I like it that much more. I loved it when I first saw it. And every single time I watch it, I j- it just grows in esteem for me. It's like It's just like a warm blanket, this movie. I mean, it's a Christmas movie, so it does kind of... It, it does make you kind of like want to curl up on the couch with some family. You know, you watch this movie with your grandparents. Yeah. There's nothing controversial about it. And it's just, it's it's colorful and fun and romantic and kind of silly. Moves along at a really nice clip. It's elegant. It's got one of John Williams' best scores, and that's saying a lot. I just absolutely adore this movie. Please don't break my heart and tell me that you don't like Catch Me If You Can. So let me say this. I when this movie came out, I fucking adored this movie. I think I saw it three, four, five times in the theater. Like I loved this movie. Comes out Christmas Day, two thousand two. Yeah, and it was you know we're we're waiting to go back to school. I probably saw it two or three times in that first week. I fucking loved it. Again, I I hadn't. I don't think I've watched this in a good five, ten years. Uh, and I, and I don't know why, but you know there's just so many so many new movies to see. And I was a couple things surprised me about rewatching. I did not remember how sort of long it takes to get going a bit i I know they need to lay the groundwork and the family stuff is fine but in my mind he starts he starts his con artistry a little earlier in the movie but that's fine i mean the anytime we have walking on the screen and uh i believe he got nominated for uh supporting actor right he did and he probably should have won uh he was he got beaten by uh chris cooper for um adaptation which is hard to argue with and walking already had an oscar obviously but He's so tremendous, and this is one of my all-time favorite walking performances. He's the heart and soul of this film. Yeah, so so a little bit slow start. Uh, I mean, notwithstanding the uh, the incredible 
opening title animated sequence, which is just so good, tremendous. So good. And and I agree with you. This is one of John Williams' most, and I would say, atypical scores for him, and also one of his best. Yeah, just when you think you got Williams figured out, all of a sudden he kind of like comes out of left field with something you really didn't expect from him. In terms of credit sequences, this is not really something Spielberg has done. Usually, usually kind of just like gets to the point, right? Usually he's just like. Title, in, we're going. It's very rare that you see like a, a legitimate extended, especially an animated title sequence. Yeah, right? it's not like he needed to pad the running time either. No, it's a, this is not a short movie. <laughs> so, None of Spielberg's movies are especially short. So I will say, kind of a slow start for me. And then I did feel like it, took, it takes a while to end. It takes a good long while to end. Not saying it, it, it's displeasing, but I thought there's a chance to sort of... Uh, you know, trim the ending a little bit, even though even though it is fairly satisfying and has a nice little cliffhanger where there's you know, Abagnale is making his final choice, and you know he's coming back. You know he's going to come back to help out Tom Hanks, but you know that's that stuff's fun. Everything in between is like you said, just so fantastic and and romantic and and a ton of fun and 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 funny. I mean, there's funny stuff yeah. going on and Hanks is a is a great character although he wavers between being smart and incisive and a dumb oaf at times. Uh, but I think that's forgivable given that he's not really a field agent. Plus, he's uh, he's kind of going in and out of the act. Like sometimes he's swinging really big with the accent. Sometimes he's uh, he's kind of trimming the rough edges. I mean, this is this is, he's tried this Boston thing a couple times now. <laughs> most recently with the Post, right? Yeah. And it always it's always like a little bit cartoony, but it almost kind of works tonally for this film. Because yeah. the film is in its own way a little bit over the top. Well, he was he was just getting ready for his real big accent in the next movie. Oh, the terminal's coming. Oh, yes, good point. Yeah, I mean this is uh, this is right in the middle of well near the end of what we were discussing last week as his incredible run mm-hmm. is his ten year run from Forrest Gump through the Lady Killers and uh, and it's interesting that he he chooses to take a back seat. You know, he's second build. He's he's definitely the supporting character in this movie. He is, I guess, he's the antagonist. Mm-hmm. Would you say? I mean, this movie doesn't really have an antagonist except for the broken family, right? Yeah, I guess, you know, the mom, maybe. I, I don't know. It's hard. Like, the one thing that sort of started to annoy me a little bit was were DiCaprio's, his motives were clearly and banging over the head blatant about he wanted to bring his family back together even when it was abundantly clear that that was not going to happen, which is fine. I mean, I kind of want a con, con artist just to do it for the for the love of the you know love of the action and for money. I mean as a as a child of a broken home, I got to say there there's a certain point in your adolescence if that's when it happens when uh it's kind of the most the heaviest most dramatic motivating force in your life. And to me it tracks that like at whatever he is 15 16 years old, that's enough of a motivating force that he would go this far down this con artist rabbit hole to, you know, either get his father's attention or approval or try and get the two of them back together. And then eventually he falls in love and eventually he starts to get into the lifestyle and he has these other motivations that come along. But there at the beginning, when he's just so blindsided by the way that his family melts down. I mean, you mentioned that the the opening of the film, the first act, is a little languid. And I, I think it's necessary track laying because I think the heart and soul of this movie is this this broken family that he has deluded himself into believing he can bring back together and in that regard i find the film to be one of spielberg's most personal and in a career that has like continued to go back to this well this is one of the most effective broken family narratives i think he's ever tackled 
like to me, I can just see like you were you were saying how this period of his career he's really doubling down on all this stuff, and this film I think is especially illustrative of that. Yeah, and and you know you mentioned that there is no real antagonist, and I think that's a good point because the track laying does sort of make clear that there really is no bad guy per se. I guess Christopher Walken is himself sort of a, a, a sham artist, but it's it's hard to blame the mom too much. It's hard to blame Christopher Walken. He's just sort of who he is. And it's hard to blame DiCaprio for, for wanting something that's not going to happen. I don't think this is a thing that ever happened. Maybe I'm wrong, but they never made kids explicitly choose one parent to live with as part of divorce proceedings, right? I mean, that seemed, that's, that's a pretty manipulative scene. I, that's a good question. Maybe that was happening in the 60s. I mean, my I, it was never brought up to me when my parents were getting divorced, but I was like yeah, 10 here. or 11, maybe, maybe after, maybe if you're like, 15 plus or something i don't know it could just be a, a plot device uh you're right but uh, but that is a pretty a particularly harrowing scene yeah DiCapri- dicaprio was 27 when they made this movie and he basically has to play what 15 to 21 or i guess i guess past that because by the time he's in jail he's like 20 or 20 we're on right so he's basically playing a like a five-year period in this guy's life but he was <laughs> he was in his late 20s by the time he did it and he just aesthetically, he is the perfect person for this role with that with that baby face. Like he can play fifteen to twenty one at even at twenty seven. This is truly a, a situation where there is literally nobody else I can imagine in this role. I, you know, I don't think Damon could pull this off. For example, I mean, DiCaprio was was born to play this role, and it's really fun to see him embrace this kind of subject matter after he'd been in this sort of fallow period following Titanic, right? Like he goes, he gets weighed, you know, the man in the iron mask and the beach and celebrity, which I think he's actually tremendous in, but it's a pretty, it's, it's kind of a dark movie. And then Gangs of New York, of course, which comes out a week before this, something like that. I mean, it comes out basically uh, simultaneous with this. And then to see him be in something so like fun and upbeat and colorful and see him playing a character where he spends a lot of the time smiling uh, is very refreshing. Yeah. And I think this is one of his most underrated performances. I think he's tremendous in this. Yeah, he is fantastic. And, you know, like I said, beginning and the very end, I have some issues. But holy shit, this movie flies when he is doing his con artist thing, when he's doing the counterfeit stuff, when he's on the run from Hanks. Like, every part of that is just, it, it's so much fun and so colorful and so lighthearted and i mean there are just so many perfect scenes in this movie you know i always think of the jennifer garner scene what a yes that's great <laughs> it's it's so great and the fact yeah. and just the button on that scene where he makes four hundred dollars or whatever <laughs> <laughs> for getting laid with uh jennifer garner yeah. it's, just, it's so good maybe a sequence that wouldn't necessarily no, fly wouldn't in fly today's nowadays, climate no. <laughs> but yes she's she's so wonderful i mean this movie is really when Spielberg starts to truly flex those casting muscles um, and when he's really like picking and choosing not just Garner, who was, I think, just starting Alias at the time, but also um, Elizabeth Banks, Ellen Pompeo, you know, James Brolin, Martin Sheen. And then I think the movie's secret weapon. I mean, I think Walken is the heart and soul, but I think the movie's secret weapon is Amy Adams. Yeah who was also 27 at the time. She's actually three months older than uh, DiCaprio. Mm-hmm. And just, God, talk about a, <laughs> a fucking star is born, right? I mean, oh, she yeah. absolutely leaps off the screen. She's so tremendous. 
Yeah, it's a great character, and th- that whole sequence in the movie is is pretty magical. Uh, just the Martin Sheen DiCaprio stuff <laughs> is, is is so good. Martin Sheen is is really a delight, and and the whole like wedding sequence and the yeah. and the final bedroom scene and the bills flying oh, around is just it's best. Spielberg at his best. And speaking of comedy, I mean, talk about a joke that really really lands when he's saying, you know, my name's not Frank Taylor. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a Lutheran. I, I just turned. 18 or whatever he goes through all this stuff and then she's like uh frank wait you're not a lutheran (laughs) (laughs) yeah such a stupid joke it really is it tickles me every time um yeah i I revisit this movie multiple times a year it's one of my favorites it's really a it's it's the kind of spielberg that i wish would come around more often where it seems like he's truly having a good time and yet taking the material seriously i mean he's he's blessed with a with a phenomenal script by jeff nathanson and just a particularly interesting story and um I love it. It's not something we see him doing often anymore. Usually he's going all the way to the old school side with something like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, or he's going all the way to like the deep, dark post 9-11 side with something like like Munich or even Lincoln. Yeah, and, and this is, you know, it's, it's a point we've made over and over and over again on this podcast, but this fits that sort of middle budget movie that we always talk about that sort of is dead now in Hollywood. This is a $52 million budget. Like, how many movies these days are $52 million budgets? Almost nothing. Half the budget of Minority Report basically made the exact same money. Minority Report made three fifty eight. dollars Catch Me If You Can made three fifty two. dollars Yeah. The next film he makes costs sixty, dollars and uh, a significant amount of that was building a friggin' airport <laughs> to shoot in. <laughs> yeah. Which just seems a little bit exorbitant. They go to all that trouble. They build this entire airport. The movie gets zero Oscar nominated. Like, they couldn't even squeeze a production design nomination when you build an entire airport to shoot your film in. And that's a testament to how much this movie did not resonate at the time that it came out. Steven Spielberg's The Terminal, I feel, is probably one of maybe, probably amongst his three or four least seen films. Like, I think when you talk to even people who consider themselves educated Spielberg of files, mm-hmm. you know, the Sugarland Express, Duel. 1941 <laughs> Duel, maybe, although Duel, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of history and novelty to Duel. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like if you're going to get into Spielberg, that's the place where people usually tell you, you know, start at the beginning. But I think Sugarland Express, 1941, always Amistad, maybe, and then the Terminal. Those are really the blind spots, right? For, for good reasons. Yeah, Matt, I had never seen this movie. Yeah, you mentioned that to me before we started recording. Uh, this was only the second time I'd ever seen it, rewatching it for this conversation. There's a reason. Yeah, there's, there's, a re- there's a lot of reasons here. Uh, we don't need to actually spend a whole lot of time on it. It's not nearly as fun to discuss uh, a crazy novelty like The Terminal as it was to discuss something like Hook, for example. Sure. The movie basically just does everything wrong. Every time it should zig, it zags. The first note I wrote for this movie is, what a weird fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> My first note is, where to begin dot 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 tonally this is the most like scattershot film i I feel like of spielberg's career like you have this like kind of high stakes for this guy should be super dramatic war-torn countries and then it just devolves into dumb and slapstick humor and it doesn't get much better from there i mean this movie is based off like a real story and you kind of get that feeling that this has to be based on something real otherwise it would it would feel ridiculous but they don't do anything plot-wise that you would that you would actually see happen like 
if this was if this was real, you know, like this guy would have a lawyer immediately, or or the people would would help him out in different ways. And this the way the whole air the airport is structured isn't very realistic at all. It's trying to meld this realism with this sort of delightful, sweet, saccharine fancy. None of it jives. It's 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 such a bizarre movie, scene to scene. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It, the movie doesn't know whether it wants to be an out and out uh, farcical comedy. Uh, like you hear, you know, you read some of Spielberg's interviews from the time where he's talking about being inspired by, you know, Jacques Tati's playtime or whatever, sure. and really wanting to make um, Hanks's character into some sort of Chaplin-esque figure. Yeah. On the same token, it is also trying to like make some, you know, statements about the post 9-11 state of the world or immigration or, um, you know, where do, we, where do we draw boundaries and what constitutes a country? And it just cannot commit to one side or the other. And as a result, it falls smack dab in no man's land. Which I, I don't know. I guess is kind of some somewhat maybe appropriate considering it's a movie. But I mean, maybe he's yeah. Maybe he's fooled us all. Maybe this movie's brilliant. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, starting with Hank's character, and to his credit, I think he does pull off the accent more or less throughout the movie. You know, it's a Zarkovia, right? Like it's just it's a made up Eastern European country, which I guess it had to be. Um, but that that sort of <laughs> lends itself to the, just the overall silliness of it Carcosia 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 sorry is that the Marvel one Zarkovia maybe <laughs> Shit. Like, Sokovia Sokovia yeah. Accords yes yeah. that's a Marvel thing yeah, yeah. you combined them you oh. made a portmanteau <laughs> If you will, <laughs> but the main character himself is is completely contradictory scene from scene. Like he's he can be both extremely awkward and extremely charming. He can be super slick, but is also like crazy clumsy. He can be dense and stupid, but also very incisive and smart. Like it just it just doesn't work. And then you have the main antagonist Stanley Tucci, whose motivations are totally unclear throughout the entire movie and just scene to scene they are all over the road what the hell this guy wants what he's in this for why he's such a prick why he just i mean he's not he's not a real person like there's nothing real about this character you can't relate to him in the least he's he's just mustache twirling pretty much the entire time right yeah, and like he'll show signs of mercy. He wants to help this guy out. Then he's a crazy stickler for for no reason. Like he's a letter of the law type of guy. Then he's willing to move his guards away to let him escape. Like it's it's just it's just so bizarre. Time and time again. And then we get to this really fantastical supporting cast of characters with Diego Luna and Chad McBride and Zoe Saldana and Pagoda. Yes. Pagoda Kumar Palana. Kumar Palana is featured his two biggest movies. He's he stabs a guy, right? <laughs> it's it's true. Yeah, that's that's why he had to flee India, right? Because he yeah. stabbed a guy. Because yeah. he's he's yeah he's on the run from the law. You want to take a guess as to uh, how old Kumar Palana was when he made um, uh, when he made the terminal? I'm gonna guess. I mean, he died pretty soon after, so I'm gonna say he was. 77. Kumar Perlana was born in 1918. Jesus Christ. Which made him 86 years old at the time of the time this film was made. Well, he looked good. Strong voice for that age. He lived for another nine years and died in uh, 2013 at the age of 94. Yeah, good for him. Not too shabby. Not too shabby at all. But one of the silliest characters in the movie and the the way his character eventually proves his loyalty to, um, God, I can't remember Hanks' character's name at this point. I know it's from Carcosi. What the hell? Victor, Victor Navorsky. Yeah. The way he finally proves his loyalty to Victor Navorsky at the end when he, when he runs out and starts waving his mop at the airplane is just, it's supposed to be this big goosebump inducing yeah. turning point and it just comes across as patently silly. Yeah, it does. And there's, there's so much of that. Diego Luna and Zoe Saldana's weird courtship 
where he basically just stalks her and sort of forces yeah. Hanks into some sort of weird Cerno de Bergerac, reverse Cerno de Bergerac situation or something. Yeah, no, he, he's a huge creep, and then she marries him the first time they, they see each other. And hey, to be fair, Diego Luna's an attractive guy, but... He, <laughs> you wouldn't think he would need Hanks to be the you know horse whisperer in this situation. Also kind of funny, I, I know I'm not the first person to point this out, but the fact that she's a Trekkie, yeah. and what, two years later would go on to become um, Uhura yeah. in the Star Trek movie? That's kind of cute. The other big point, like this movie is too long. Of all the movies in Spielberg's career to keep to a nice tight 90 minutes, this would have yeah. been the one... Uh, but he he cannot restrain himself. And look, there was an easy way to make this movie 90 minutes is to cut out Catherine Zeta-Jones. There's nothing this movie me- needs less than a love story, right? <laughs> this yeah. movie does not need a romance subplot. And her character is, is horribly underserved, underwritten, cardboard. It's really like Sasha Gervaisi and Andrew Nichol, who's a writer who I actually have a lot of respect for, kind of should be ashamed of themselves. I'm not sure who's responsible for this character, but it's not a real character. It's Gervaisi and Jeff Nathanson, right? Oh, Jeff Nathanson. He's involved too, yeah. So you got story by Gervaisi and Nicole, and then screenplay by Nathanson and Gervaisi. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a mess. It's a mess. And this is this is this sort of spells the end for the Catherine Zeta Jones run. Yeah. Right? I mean, after this, she's not really a movie star anymore. Yeah, and you look, I like Catherine Zeta Jones just fine, and she's definitely uh she's got her own sort of charm but this movie did not serve her well and like you said horribly underwritten character all this said you know it's hard to really despise this movie i mean there's just a general sweetness to it that's that's fine that doesn't you know it's it's hard to hate it and tom hanks is tom hanks so you got that going for you but holy shit i was not prepared for how weird this movie would be well you watch you know you watch this movie having never seen it before i'm sure you'd heard a lot about how uh disposable it was and i presume that when you sat down to watch it you were probably like well it's spielberg how bad can it really be right yeah exactly it's it's really a, a movie that needs to be seen to be believed um not that i would want to take 130 minutes away from my worst enemy but kind of need to see it to understand how off the rails it can get and but i don't really put any of that at spielberg's feet like as usual this guy even in his sleep, he can't help but make serviceable story. You know, he can't help but make a serviceable, relatively watchable film. I mean, the issues with this are all in the screenplay, not yeah. necessarily with Spielberg's approach. Although I, I got, you know, obviously he's responsible for some of the tonal stuff and probably for like, I think that some of the comedic success, he fe- maybe he got greedy after Catch Me If You Can. I was like, ooh, maybe I do have some comedic chops. Let's see how far I can push this thing. Like, nope, one flat joke after another. The fact that Nathanson was brought on, he was a member of a team of writers here. You know, you wonder if Spielberg brought him the script and was like, hey, punch this up a little bit. Do what you did with Catch Me If You Can. And if that sort of hybrid ended up being a huge mistake i don't know i have no insight into the what the process was for the screenwriting you know even even in this sort of constrained environment in in just this airport terminal he does have a lot of just beautifully shot scenes a lot of great tracking stuff some really cool well-lit stuff but i mean it's not enough to save this this mess and it has one of john williams most uh, obnoxiously catchy (laughs) scores like yeah it's hard for me to criticize William's score because, goddamn, I, I was fucking humming it for days after watching it again. I mean, it really is a fucking earworm of a score. That's that's a little bit of a backhanded compliment. Um, but I am kind of surprised he didn't get Oscar nominated for it because, you know, John Williams sneezes and gets Oscar nominated. Uh, so it's weird that, like, such a kind of jaunty little earworm of a score didn't get Oscar nominated. No Oscar nominations for this film, which is strange for a Spielberg movie. Yeah. Although I will say, speaking of credits, Catch Me If You Can... 
They got the opening credits uh, going on. This one's got the end credits going on, right? You got to love those signatures over the end credits. Yeah. Those are fun. Those are fun, I suppose. Not enough to redeem the movie, but yeah. there are a lot of, it's kind of fun to see, you know, just to see so many of your favorite character actors and see what their uh, signatures look like. Sure. It's cute. It's a cute idea. Yeah. So that's the best part of this movie is that it is. when it ends. Which... Sit, sit, <laughs> sit through it so that you can see the cute end credits. Yeah. Great. No, this is for Spielberg completists only. This is not a good movie. No, it's weird. All right. Do you have a good segue for this next one, Matt? It's hard to connect to these two movies. <laughs> it truly is. Yeah. I mean, he goes from something really, really light and fluffy and disposable to something that's very, very dark. Honestly, probably one of his most disturbing and I'd say least rewatchable films. I don't even, I don't necessarily mean that. To, I don't mean to say that it's a bad movie. I, I think there's a lot about it that's really impressive. I rarely revisit War of the Worlds. Pro- watching it for this is probably the fourth time that I've seen the movie, including the two times I saw it in the theater. Yeah, I, don't, I, I think I saw it two times in the theater. I do not think I've seen it since. Maybe there was a random viewing in a couple years afterwards. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is his highest body count of any movie he's ever made, right? <laughs> That's fair. I mean, I'm sure Saving Private Ryan could give this a run. For, although there's that scene where they're standing by the river and it's just like dead bodies as far as you can see, right? Well, go floating by I mean, Dakota I, I guess the implied death count, right? Just that the aliens are... Okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, fair. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Aliens are are trying to extinguish the human population. Yeah, on on paper, I think this sounded like a slam dunk, right? Or like, oh, great. Spielberg going back to alien invasions again? Awesome. He hit it out of the park with Close Encounters and E.T.? Yeah. Of course he'd make another alien movie. How is this not going to work? Well, the twist here is that the aliens are bad. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, the opening voiceover with Morgan Freeman, which was the start of that cliche, I feel like, uh, is like a little biology lesson, I guess. I don't know. It's it's very silly, actually, uh, the, the voiceover. Yeah, again, this movie, for what it is, it takes a tiny little bit to get going, which is which is fine. I guess you have to establish the, the Tom Cruise character, which this character is, it's kind of an odd, I don't know, I watch this movie again, I never got really a feel for who Tom Cruise was. I'm, I, I know they're trying to make him sort of complex, but, you know, at the beginning, he seems to not really give a shit about his kids. And I guess that's the point is he's being drawn to his kids. But he he, he feels like he's being put upon or like, at least that's his uh, that's his sort of outlook on being a parent. Um, and then he has to sort of rise up. But it's, you know, you never you never like to see Tom Cruise in that way unless he's going full antagonist or something like collateral so you know they need a little heavy lifting at the beginning to get that going yeah literally right like oh, the yes. first time you see him he's lifting <laughs> he heavy uh, lifting yeah he's lifting uh, cargo containers and stuff um yeah for a guy with as much range as Cruz, he is not very well suited to this kind of like dirt bag father figure right like he, it, this for some reason he just seems almost kind of miscast in this role yeah uh, which is not something we say about Cruz very often and uh the crazy thing is that he was pretty hot for this script and he's he for the second time in a row, he's the one who brought it to Spielberg. Apparently, the only person who's a bigger David Kep fan than uh, Steven Spielberg and Oscar Dahl is Tom Cruise, because he was <laughs> over the over the moon for this script How from your buddy Kep. Dare you? Cruise brings him this script. He's super hot for it. As a matter of fact, he's so hot for it that he convinces Spielberg to uh, delay the impending Munich shoot so that they can get this thing off beforehand and get it out in time for summer uh, 2005. So basically this sets up third time now, right? That Spielberg has had a two for year. Yeah. He did it in 1993 famously, maybe the greatest, the single greatest year for a filmmaker ever. 
He did it again in 97 to a little more mixed results. And then uh, and then he does it again in 2005. So he releases this in July of 2005, and he manages to turn around Munich in time for a Christmas well, release in the exact same year. Don't forget 2002. Yes, I'm sorry. This is the fourth time. Yeah, we just discussed Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can in 2002. So this is something that he clearly likes to do. And I think this is a particularly interesting year because he makes two of the darkest films he's ever made up to this point. And the two films that deal the most explicitly with the 9-11 connection, right? Yes, absolutely. We are under attack. Yes, we're, we're under attack. He's, he's obviously going to stop short of going the Oliver Stone or Paul Greengrass route of dealing with that event explicitly. But this is a movie that is meant to invoke 9-11 imagery. Yes. From the, I mean, it takes, you know, basically takes place around New York. Uh, the very first shot post Morgan Freeman monologue is is Lower Manhattan, right? Yeah. Aren't you looking? I think you're like looking from like Red Hook, Brooklyn up towards Lower Manhattan, where obviously the towers are conspicuously absent. Yeah, it is. And, you know, especially this first act, which is which is New York under attack, people fleeing down the streets. Um, it is very evocative. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. But does he have a point? <laughs> <laughs> or is it just to evoke those those images? I, I I'm not sure there is sort of any sort of prescient point uh, of view here at all. Am I missing something, Matt? I, I think that the first act of this movie is pretty damn strong. Maybe even the first half of this movie is pretty strong. Like some of the scariest, some of the most harrowing stuff in Spielberg's career can be found in the first half of this film, particularly the first sequence where the aliens come up from the ground and start attacking. Yeah. And stuff like you know vaporizing a dude who's hold, holding a video camera, and then seeing the um, seeing the carnage from inside of the video camera uh, viewfinder. Just the image of people turning to dust, basically, and their uh, and their clothes floating to the ground. And by the time Cruz gets back to his house after that initial action sequence, and the fact that he's covered in dust, which is basically particles from from vaporized human beings, right? He like shakes his hair at one point and like dust from these vaporized humans comes out of his hair. It's really, it's kind of disturbing if you really sort of break it down like that. Yeah. And him trying to explain this to his, not only trying to shield his children and trying to protect his children, but even just like trying to explain to them something that just can't compute. And I really feel like that's how I felt on the morning of September 11th. It's like, I don't know what I'm looking at. This doesn't compute. I've never seen anything like this before. And that's kind of a recurring, you know, emotional motif throughout this is like, how do you how do you process what's happening? Cruz's character, who's set up to be in sort of a state of arrested development, right? Yeah. He's kind of this dirtbag dude. He's just he just wants to like drink, drink beer and work on his car. He's not a very good father. And the movie's about him having to like become an adult for his children, which is not a bad, not a bad setup. Not a bad trajectory. I don't know if the movie completely pays it off, but it's a pretty good setup. It's a good setup, and it's uh, there are so many stunning images, especially in this first uh, sequence happening. You know, them going out into the backyard, and Amy Ryan's there, and they're they're watching the storm. That's some pretty yeah. crazy shit. And then the you know the wind, and then everything stops. And then like I, I love that scene where like the church is being pulled apart. Like that's pretty crazy and awesome. And then I love them escaping with the kids, and like they set up the the van thing pretty well with him you know talking to the mechanic on his way out and then yeah. stealing the car like that that's and getting out right in time like that stuff is really good and yeah i'm with you i think this movie won visual effects oscar right it was at least nominated it was nominated for three oscars but you might be exactly right it might have no it doesn't look like it won okay nominated for sound mixing editing visual effects did not win huge hit huge hit yeah. which is crazy to me considering how how dark it is and the fact that Tom Cruise was sort of going, he was at least beginning what would go on to become sort of his 
like tabloid meltdown, right? Yeah. The um, publicity tour for this movie is where the infamous Oprah couch jumping comes along, and it's where he rolls out Katie Holmes onto the you know the red carpet. Like he, he's starting to melt down during the publicity of this movie. But it was good press, Matt. It's it's new enough that people aren't people don't turn on Cruz yet. They turn this movie into an enormous hit, one of the biggest hits of the year. It's still the biggest hit of Cruz's career. And then it's the next movie, which is Mission Impossible 3, which is the one that suffers. Spielberg's sixth most successful film and Cruz's first. It looked like Mission Impossible Fallout was right on the verge of, of giving it a run for its money, but it came up like $5 million short. So this is still the biggest hit of Tom Cruise's career. Also, and thank goodness because it was an incredibly expensive movie. $132 million movie, $592 million return. Like we said, three Oscar nominations. $2 million alone spent on um, the plane wreckage. Yeah. There was so much plane wreckage, and it was so expensive to transport it and to get it there and to set it all up that they actually ended up building the houses around the plane wreckage for that <laughs> sequence. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly elaborate movie. It looks very expensive. The production process, principal photography rather, was surprisingly long considering the fact that it had this truncated, sped-up, three-month uh, pre-production period. But yeah, one of the longer shoots in Spielberg's career, apparently a pretty unpleasant one as well, just given all the logistics involved. But this, along with Minority Report, were the two films that really pushed this idea of pre-visualizing a lot of the production design as a way to save time and money. Okay. So a lot, I mean, the whole, the, the, the term previs, which is something that's just ubiquitous nowadays, was, that was a term that was coined on the set of Minority Report throughout that whole thing. All we're talking about is precogs and previs visualizations and pre-crime and stuff so previs comes from minority report and they really double down on it in the production of this film well didn't uh yeah didn't peter jackson and weta do a lot of that stuff too for lord of the rings i'm sure maybe they just didn't have a term for it at the time yeah and i like how the plane wreckage is just is there for like one scene and that scene is with the news crew to give the most blatant and convenient exposition ever in a movie basically um just to, yeah. just explaining what's going on. Like, they needed that scene. They're having it both ways because, you know, you could have had this movie be like Independence Day or something, right? Where it's a, sort of a global narrative, but they decided to keep it signs <laughs> type of movie where you're just... Focused. Which I like. Yeah, which, which I like. That's one of my favorite aspects of this thing is that they try they keep it insular. They keep it just around this... The, 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 our three main characters, right? Cruz, his son, and his daughter. I, I, I like that. I like the fact that it didn't... It never, like, zoomed out to show a more global perspective. The only time you ever see that is through those the, the the like news van sequence. Yeah, and I'm not even that, that's my point. Is like I'm not even sure you need that news van sequence. I kind of like being kept in the dark a little bit because sure. anything that they say in there, you kind of figure out along the way. Anyway, uh, but I guess you need you need to film something, and if you're going to spend two million dollars on those uh, <laughs> on those planes, there's even that relatively infamous sequence where they're running up the hill. It's it's the sequence where uh, what's his name, Justin Chatwin, who plays his son. Uh, they're running up the hill, and there's like there's something apocalyptic going on on the other side of the hill. Like, you know, there's aren't, there's like tanks and Humvees and there's explosions and there's all these guys running over the hill. And yet the camera never allows you to see what's going on on the other side of the hill because if Cruz and Dakota Fanning don't cross over the top of that hill, then we're, we can't see what they can't see. Right. Yeah. Cause we're with them the whole time. So Chatwin takes up cause he wants to go join the resistance or whatever, but because we got to stay with Cruz, we'll never know what was happening on the other side of that hill, which seems to be, kind of the movie's per- perspectorial mission statement, right? Sure. Like it's where it always wants to be situated with this guy and with Dakota Fanning to a lesser extent. You could have a drinking game where you get blacked out taking a sip every time Dakota Fanning screams at the top of her fucking lungs. D- does that not bother you in this movie, Matt? Like she screams, and like I like Dakota Fanning just fine, but she screams so often in this movie. 
it becomes exceedingly grating. However, I, I I think her character is is good. You know, her interplay with with Cruz, but the Justin Chatwin character, this guy's a little punk bitch, isn't he? Yeah. This uh, whatever hormones are going on, but I'm not sure what his what he's going for here. I mean, he has that long scene where he finally leaves Tom Cruise, where he's like, I just have to see this. I have to see what's going. On. Like you've been seeing what's going on the whole time, man. Like we we've seen all this stuff. He wants to join the army, and the army's like, no. You're a fucking kid. Get out of here. So you're only left to just think that I guess he's just a a big old idiot. Yeah, well, there's a couple things going on here. Uh, First and foremost, yeah, I agree. The Dakota Fanny thing. I mean, yeah, she spends a lot of the movie screaming, although that's technic. That's relatively realistic for how someone her age would be reacting in this situation, right? I don't disagree that it's grating. I think Dakota Fanny's pretty fantastic in this movie, actually. All screaming and grating aside. I mean, this is really in the midst of when she was really rocking and rolling, right? Yeah, you know, she's she's a great actress and you know, I, I can't imagine too many young people uh, being able to pull this off. I mean, how old was she at this point? Ten? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, it's like it starts with "I Am Sam" and then into "Cat in the Hat" and then "Man on Fire," which is also fucking fantastic and underrated movie. Mm-hmm. And then uh, "War of the Worlds," and then that's pretty much it for the adolescent run of Dakota Fanning. Interestingly enough, she hasn't really been able to segue into uh, into the career I think we all expected her to have. Her her sister has kind of come along and used and taken that position up. But I, I think she's really great in this movie. She was born in 94 so she was 11 years old 10 when they filmed probably huh? 10 when they shot yeah you're exactly right um and then yeah justin chatwin he he's not good in this movie and i think that speaks to why he was never really able to forge a film career for himself i've never watched shameless but i know that's kind of where he had to go in order to be able to like find a place where he could kind of dig in and and make a career for himself and you know yeah, pay the bills my, <laughs> over the last decade or so my girlfriend just rewatched all of shameless she really likes that show so i i've caught a lot by osmosis and he's you know he's he's, he's, he's pretty good i mean he's he's, okay. he's definitely not bad he's definitely not like he is here plays a totally different kind of role it's very it's an underwritten character but i believe that the point of that character is to be a reflection of all the people who became emotionally weaponized after 9-11 decided they were going to drop everything and defend this country right like that's that's what that's what that that's the utility of that character is to try to speak to the idea that an event like this causes people of a certain age to be like you know not on my watch or i need to join the resistance like i need i'm going to take up arms like uh we we've been attacked now i need to get involved yeah yeah it's a bad character it's, it's a bad a, character a, and yeah. you know the most problematic plot thing in the movie is he disappears and he just shows up at the end and there's no explanation yeah this movie has an absolute meltdown in the third act which again is is kind of a bit of a recurring theme unfortunately uh in this period of spielberg's career well i mean you talked about the perspectorial <laughs> direction i don't even know if that's a word i don't think just... it is but i wanted to reuse okay. it i liked it <laughs> all right <laughs> um but its choice to just focus on these characters made it maybe impossible to end on a satisfying note because unless you want to have the totally unrealistic thing where they are responsible for taking the aliens down and in a way tom cruise points out that there are birds on the thing at the end but that's just sort of a one-off they would have figured that out eventually you know you, you can't have these people be the be the heroes really so how else are you gonna how else are you gonna end it that said i mean it's it's as deus ex machina as you get yeah it really feels like a throwaway although apparently is totally consistent with the hd wells book um in terms of how they quote-unquote take down you know how the aliens are taken down um but yeah it feels like a real like it really the movie just kind of like coasts to a stop yeah pretty much everything after the tim robbins haunted house sequence 
mm-hmm. uh, just feels very perfunctory and not especially satisfying. And then, yeah, the last couple scenes are just like, Bleh. I, I completely lose interest in this movie by the end. I mean, even the Tim Robbins, I mean, it becomes a completely different movie, which I guess is sort of incorrigible. Like, I don't dislike Tim Robbins' performance or the stuff that goes on in his basement as much as a lot of people. A lot of people think that's like the worst sequence I in the movie. I don't get that. I think that sequence is pretty good and pretty pure it's inventive Spielberg. like the, the whole yeah. Yeah, getting chased around like i think that's very suspenseful and very well shot so i i, I mean I, robbins I is clearly robbins is totally off in his own movie performance yes yes he is <laughs> coming he's what two years off of winning his oscar for mystic river at this point so he's feeling empowered i guess <laughs> i don't hate it no i don't, I don't hate it. it as much as a lot of people do but pretty much everything after that i'm just i'm totally tuned out yeah as a result i just i just don't find this one to be especially revisitable but some of the special effects are as incredible as, as some of the visuals are some of some of the most um, eye popping and harrowing things you'll ever see in a Spielberg movie. And um, and he clearly is incredibly invested in all of this. And even Cruz, as miscast as he is, is, as usual, like totally investing himself in it. Uh, but it's just a wa- it's just a, this and the and the terminal are just tonally um, completely all over the road in a very distracting fashion yeah yeah and uh i will say i do like the fairy sequence as well i think that's a very visually stunning uh that's fun yeah 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 i agree i you know this is not a movie i will revisit probably you know ever again unless i'm i'm forced to for for some reason you know i'm not i'm not terribly mad at it but uh you know it's it's kind of crazy how much how much money it made I, I guess it goes to show you you make a big budget alien movie that's that's not terrible it's gonna make a fuck ton of money it was a huge hit came out in july of 2005 this would be right after we graduated from college and um i actually saw it when i was um backpacking through europe oh wow is a very cliche post-collegiate thing to do. So I saw it in an outdoor movie theater in Athens, Greece, up on a rooftop. Oh wow! And uh, it, which is one, of, it might be one of my all-time great like movie experience, you know, movie theater experiences, just because of the venue, not because of the movie. Like you could literally could see the Parthenon in, in the distance, which I, I spent a lot more time looking at that than I did looking at the movie screen. Holy shit! Yeah. But the point is that uh, that was the first time I'd ever been to Europe. And for a month after seeing that film, I basically like went to 13 countries all over Europe and just backpacked around and got adventures and did the whole 22 years old backpacking through Europe thing. And then I came back to the States and a couple months later, Munich came along, which is in its own way, kind of a European travelogue of a movie. Yeah. And I found myself incredibly invested in that film because I had just sort of been introduced to Europe, understood, you know, the geography for the first time in my life. They had basically been shooting that movie simultaneously with while I was, I mean, I never, I never came across. Actually, interestingly enough, when I was in Rome, they were shooting Mission Impossible 3 and I did see the crew there shooting that, but I never saw uh, any of the Munich crew because I think they were mostly in Budapest and Malta. Okay. Um, and then a little bit in Paris and London. But my point is that when I saw Munich, it had a it had a big effect on me because I was like, oh, I, I understand all these different countries' relationships to themselves for the first time in my life. And you know, now I've actually used a passport, and I get you know, I, I understand how easy it is to move between countries in Europe and stuff. So that aspect of Munich really had a big effect on me. And yeah, for some reason, Munich uh, it really appealed to me for so like such a dark, angry movie that deals with so many like complicated controversial themes uh i found it to be incredibly moving i don't know it it really got to me and it it actually ended up being my favorite film of 2005 was nominated for best picture and yet i feel like still is one of spielberg's most underrated films for some reason yeah uh you know spoiler this is one of my favorite spielberg movies um yeah we'll see where it ends up on my final list but it's incredible, especially looking back at the movies he's made before this, just how 
how adult this movie is. I mean, there's there's nuance and ambiguity here that's uh, lacking in almost every movie he's ever made. I mean, usually with his adult movies, there's a very clear point of view, right? There's clear antagonist, clear protagonist, and this movie, he really leaves it up in the air, and that's especially impressive given, you know, his extreme, not extreme, but like his, his very overt jewishness and how much that has informed a lot of his filmmaking over the years practicing jew at least since making uh, schindler's list and yet this movie is controversial like a lot of people consider it to be uh, anti-israel yeah i mean a lot of zionist organizations i think boycotted the movie and there's a lot of yeah. there's been a lot of uh, anger thrown at it from particular uh groups of people but i think that means the movie was was probably effective right like that's the point of this movie is that there is no good guy in this in this battle in the, in, in this world i i, I also think it's one of his most sort of handsomely shot movies and like you said it it helps that this is a european travelogue i'm not positive about this but it seems like most of it was on location right like he he was in europe for for this whole shoot yeah like i said a lot of it's budapest and malta was that were the two main shooting locations so for example budapest stands in for um rome and it stands in for certain places in, in Paris and I think places in London as well, whereas Malta stands in for Lebanon and stands in for Cyprus. Yeah, okay. I think they I think when they're when they're in Amsterdam they actually are in Amsterdam and I think when they're in, when they're in London they actually are in London. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I mean they were bouncing around for sure. I just think those are the main two shooting locations because they were able to double those countries. Malta also stands in for um, tele, you know for Israel as well. Yeah, I mean I, I guess let's just start at the beginning. You know the whole Olympic. Munich stuff is is really well done and sort of efficiently done at the beginning of the movie. You know, you, you can make, you know, I, I just watched this with uh, my dad um, and he had never seen it, and, you know, hmm. and, and he was surprised that the whole movie wasn't about, you know, just the Munich attack itself. And so when that was done and gone within the, you know, the first 20 minutes of the movie or whatever, uh, that was surprising. And I think it's really, it really adeptly utilizes the sort of, actual news clips from the time with the with the live action stuff and it's just extremely well done and it's a great setup for 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 what's to come and yeah i mean i i just love how well he does the period stuff and the attention to detail here is 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 terrific and just the recruitment of of banna is i mean everything about the beginning of this movie the setup is 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 so perfect and non-clunky especially compared with the movies we've kind of talked about leading into it yeah when i heard when when i when this film was announced and and this title was announced knowing very little about this story, but being aware of the terrorist attacks at the Munich Olympics, I was like, oh, okay, well then, and I'm assuming a lot of us felt this way, like, oh, he's making a movie about the terrorist attacks at the Munich Olympics. At this point, I think that movie Three Days in September had already come out, yeah. uh, the documentary that, that Michael Douglas, um, excellent documentary. If you, if you haven't seen it, check it out if you're interested in this subject matter. It, it won the Best Documentary Oscar. It's going to be a movie that's about that event, when in reality, it, it's about everything that comes after that event. Yeah. And in that regard, the title kind of reminds me of something like Chinatown, right? <laughs> yeah. Where it's like the specter of this location is what informs this story. It's not explicitly about this location. Mm-hmm. And it has that wonderful opening opening title where you see all these different countries around the world, which I believe the implications that each one of these countries has had a terrorist attack of some kind. Mm-hmm. And then Munich is the one that lights up and like comes to the forefront. And the idea that the movie is about the aftermath of what went on and what will unfortunately always be associated with this particular European city. They never actually go there. I mean, all the Munich stuff after that uh, prologue 
is just told in flashback to those events, right? Like yeah. our guys, our group, our uh, Mossad guys, they never actually go to Munich, right? No, no, at all. Which I think is, you know, there's there, that's significant. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, it's it's very similar to what we were talking about in terms of the Justin Chatwin character in War of the Worlds, where a terrorist event sort of mobilizes somebody, you know, like engages somebody to want to take on, to want to fight for their country, to want to defend their country, to want to take on a mission. In Chatwin's case, he, he throws himself, I mean, he, I'm assuming he like volunteers to be recruited by the National Guard or something. In this case, uh, Banna already works for the Mossad, but now he actually takes on this mission where he's going to go around and assassinate all these guys who may or may not have been involved in the Munich attacks. And all that stuff is great. The Golda Meir stuff is amazing. Yes. Um, yep. All the stuff with Jeffrey Wright is, is fucking fantastic where they're walking along the waterfront. Jeffrey, you know, Jeffrey Rush. Even, or Jeffrey Wright I'm would sorry. have been an interesting casting. Jeffrey Wright would have been, I'm sorry, Jeffrey Rush. <laughs> uh, love all that stuff. And then the the first dinner that he has with all of his um, teammates is all wonderful. Like the setup is, is really solid. And you, you almost get this sense that Spielberg, who's now gone through the whole War of the Worlds process, which was like a 72-day shoot and $132 million and all these special effects and like, you know, this huge movie star at the center of it. It just seems like a, a, a draining ordeal. And now he's like, all right, we're going to Europe. We're going to shoot this thing in two months. Everything is handheld. We're doing it all on zoom lenses. It's all practical locations. We're not building anything. Like, it just seems like you get, there just seems to be like a sense of urgency and a sense that like, I'm just going to kind of like shoot this thing real run and gun, right? You get, you get the impression that he and Kaminsky are just making it up as they go along. And it seems like that uh, kind of invigorates them. This is him finding a different, a different gear that I didn't, like you mentioned it, it's a more adult Spielberg movie. I completely agree. It feels like even more adult than something like Schindler's List, for example. Not, not necessarily a better movie, but somehow evolved, somehow matured from there. Yeah, that's fantastic. And you know, one of the things that struck me about you know the assassination scenes is, like I said, it's all these zoom lenses and these really this in, these incredible long shots with these you know these pull focus things and the it, it's so beautifully choreographed. But you know, I, I was thinking, especially like you know, you think of the Rome sequence, and he sort of fools you a little bit. Like he, he makes it seem and shot in a way where it's like, oh, this is some complex plot that they have this crazy like heist feeling to these assassinations where there's really nothing complex (laughs) about them cornering this guy in his apartment building and then shooting him right like that could have been one you know 30 second sequence but the whole build up and the spying type stuff uh, that goes along with it is uh it's it, it it's so fun to watch and it's so beautifully, uh, beautifully shot and you know strategically, you know well thought out. He's able to brush aside how sort of simple and maybe blunt and even clumsy some of these assassination scenes are. He can't mute his own inherent Spielbergness in terms of how incredibly entertaining he makes these action sequences, right? Yeah. Like oftentimes he's criticized for over Spielbergizing, which usually means a certain amount of saccharine sentimentality in this regard he's making a film with some very very dark themes about some very real serious raw relatively recent stuff the action sequences are barn burners right like they're so fucking exciting i mean the centerpiece of course being uh, the thing in paris with the The, telephone booth right the phone bomb thing is crazy right which you know on paper maybe with a lesser filmmaker who's attempting to make this sequence really exciting you're like oh that's kind of crass right like this little girl's maybe going to get blown up and then this guy does get blown up and it's technically a terrorist it, like it all just sounds very problematic he approaches it in this really serious very respectful and yet just inherently cinematic method i mean the scene just flies it's 
it's fucking exciting. I mean, that's the only word for it. It's really, really good. It's like you watch that sequence, you're just like, yep, he he can't help himself. This is what he does. He has an inherent understanding of, of geography and he knows exactly which character to be on at any given time. And he knows all the buttons to push. He knows exactly when to drain the sound out. And there's there's a bunch of sequences in the film that are like that. But to me, that's the most effective one. Yeah, that's the that's the best one. But the, you know, like you said, there are a bunch of them. And I, I think you said the right word, geography. His his sense of, of, of place with all these different characters and everything going on is, is just uh, impeccable. Let me ask you this, Matt. What do you think about the whole French Godfather stuff? Yeah, it's it's interesting. They, this movie has a lot of James Bond connections. It obviously co-stars somebody who would go on to be James. He may have very well even been cast in the role of James Bond when he made this movie because Casino Royale comes out the next year in Daniel Craig. It features a soon-to-be Bond villain in Mathieu Almeric, who uh, goes on to be the villain in Quantum of Solace. And then it features a former Bond villain in Michael Lonsdale, who of course was Drax in Moonraker. And uh, and the movie really does kind of grind to a halt in this extended sequence at his palatial estate. But I kind of dig it. I, you know, I, like, lo- I, think I love it. Comes, it. Yeah. <laughs> it comes along. I mean, grind to a halt makes it sound like to the movie's detriment. It's actually a pretty incredible sequence. And the two of that, I mean, Michael Lonsdale is so unbelievable. And you just hang on his every word. And the fact that he's this he's this scary larger than life figure who speaks in these very, very dulcet tones. Yeah. Right. I, I really like it. I think it's uh it's a standout sequence for sure. Especially when there's been just like so much bloodshed and so much thrown at you to like take a moment to breathe, to have this really nice uh, lunch with all these people, even though it gets political and contentious around their lunch table, right? Like all of his children start to sort of bring up issues or disagree with him. And he, and he basically does the whole, like I spoil my children and I, like you said, it's yeah. Like you said, it's it's funny. I never made the connection. You're exactly right. It's totally a Godfather sequence. Like I, I my children, you know, they speak when they should listen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's great. I love Matthew Almerich as well. He's one of my favorites. I think he's just wonderful in this movie. He's so slimy. You know, he's so oily. And this is an example of of great uh, screenwriting here because you know, reading about the actual events and the plot like this these french characters didn't exist and their intel throughout these assassinations or you know supposed assassinations were it was, it was the work of of a network of Mossad agents so it's not like this character existed that knows everything as a plot device that could come off as really convenient and sort of contrived there's this family or whatever that just has all the information but with that that sequence and just with uh, Almerich being fantastic and really investing in those characters they they sell it right like they sell that these guys are powerful and know things and are these sort of almost illuminati type figures in the movie who have you know understand whatever world making stuff is going on from that point on you're not questioning uh where they get their intel because because you get it like the power is there and and, and you absolutely believe it let alone the fact that yeah, it, it's a nice pause in the action and uh yeah i love that scene yeah you mentioned the the strength of the writing in this movie which is really its secret weapon this is spielberg's first time working with tony kushner who's obviously become kind of his go-to guy i mean i, I love that when spielberg ends up with certain people that he knows are like the piece of the puzzle that's been missing he just like wraps his arms and legs around them yeah. <laughs> and from here on out he's just like anytime i can get kushner get me that kushner and it's a very just smart sophisticated mysterious little movie it, it's just it really to me it feels kind of like the spiritual sequel to schindler's list in a lot of ways it feels that important um obviously not as clean or as disciplined as that movie is or you know maybe as just profound but yeah, it's it's really it's adult Spielberg working on a completely different level. I mean, this is obviously the first R-rated movie he'd made since Private Ryan, right? 
uh, yeah. And it feels it feels grimy. It's like it's maybe it might it might be gorier. It might be bloodier than Schindler's List. Even I mean, it's just a kind of a down and dirty, grimy, bloody, profane little movie that's also kind of like sexually obsessed and like yeah. the very oh, yeah. controversial, very infamous climactic sequence uh pun intended <laughs> which everybody loves to, to criticize um the the I've, I've mentioned the blank check podcast before with david sims and griffin newman and they went through uh, all the spielberg movies here a couple years ago and when they were having their munich conversation they made a joke that it feels like munich is the movie spielberg made right after he lost his virginity <laughs> where all of a sudden he's just like all he wants to do is just like yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just like this movie is like any chance this movie gets to uh, get somebody naked or to show Eric Bana having sex, it, it completely takes advantage of it. And I don't know, that last sequence, a lot of people have, have a big problem with. A lot of people say it, it ruins the movie. Where do you fall? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I... <laughs> I, I think it might yeah you know, it's a little over the top but they're trying to delve into the 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 mania of this character and how this guy is going to be sort of broken for the rest of his life and he's going to take any chance he has to sort of try to forget and not not be paranoid so I I, I think it's fine I mean it's it's a little over the top but besides that I I, I do think the movie as opposed to some of the movies we've talked about today uh, really does stick the landing I, I think it's over the top but I get. I get what he's going for. And I, I think Banna is pretty amazing in this movie. I'm surprised Banna didn't go on to become a bigger movie star because I think he's I think he's really great in this role. Apparently the role was written for him, and I can't really imagine anybody else in it. And um I think he does things with the accent. He you know, he gets well, gets away is the wrong term. I think he acquits himself with the accent in ways that other actors couldn't. Yeah. Um, I think he has to go to some crazy places emotionally, you know, like when he breaks down, when he's listening to his daughter's voice on the phone, all the stuff with gold in my ear, all the stuff with Kiaran Hins, who's also tremendous in this film. Yeah. Um, all the stuff where he's like, where he goes full, you know, Gene Hackman in the conversation and starts like tearing up his, his mattress and stuff <laughs> and sleeping in the closet. Yeah. It's all it's all good stuff. I, I really I think he's really amazing in this, and I, I think it's crazy that he wasn't nominated for Best Actor in two thousand five. This is a particularly dark. It's a particularly bad year for movies. This is the Crash year, right? Yeah. This is year when Crash wins Best Picture, and uh, as much as I like Brokeback Mountain. To me, this was the strongest of the five Best Picture nominees. It's crazy to me that Banna didn't end up getting nominated. And as a result of that and the fact that the movie wasn't that big of a hit, Banna just never really managed to um, rose to that A-list level that I think Spielberg was setting him up for. I mean, this is two years after Hulk. Mm Mm-hmm which is another complicated film sure. <laughs> for a number of reasons. Yeah. For a fleeting moment there, he was he was the guy. And it seemed like this was going to be the film that would like really push him over the edge. But on a 70 million, 70 million budget, uh, the movie makes 130. So it kind of just ekes out a profit. And even that's pretty impressive considering what a tough sell this film is. Yeah, it's crazy that the movie made this that much given given the subject matter and, and you know it's it's not like a it's not a crowd pleaser I, w- I wouldn't say yeah it comes out at christmas time and it's definitely not uh, not a warm fuzzy it's, family it's, movie yeah it's not a take the parents kind of movie that the big sex scene at the end which is uh, which is overwhelming and then uh, and then the final scene where he's walking along the um the waterfront with jeffrey rush and then the pan over to the uh, to the Twin Towers, which, you know, would seem, again, on paper, like it's a little bit heavy-handed, but I think it really works. I think it's really effective. I, You know, I think he's making a very blunt point, mm-hmm. but I think it feels right. It feels right for the material, and it feels right for the tone, and it, it really works for me. Yeah, I mean, this movie's not like, it's not symbolically about terrorism. It is about terrorism, right? So I, th- I think it's, yeah, I, I think it's appropriate, and it makes sense, and it's not, it's not groan-inducing in the least. 
It's all eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of stuff, right? If you really boil it down. Any final thoughts on the death of DreamWorks? Yeah, I mean, we didn't go too far down the rabbit hole of talking too much about the studio itself, but, um, you know, it just it just couldn't sustain. It was just a uh, it was an experiment that just just couldn't sustain itself. And like so many creatives, Spielberg is first and foremost a consummate filmmaker. He's not necessarily meant to be out there being the CEO of, of a studio. So, I mean, Steven Soderbergh had a similar situation when he was trying to keep Section 8 going, and he just couldn't keep producing everybody else's projects because he wanted to get out there and direct his own. Yeah. It actually kind of makes sense that the DreamWorks experiment, quote-unquote, failed. Yeah. Right? But we got a lot of really great movies out of it, and DreamWorks still exists in you know as a different animal. It's still out there. It's still, um, it's still relevant, and it's always going to be sort of like a shingle that Spielberg can kind of hang his hat on. Sure. So, yeah, it was just, it, it made sense that... After 1993, when he basically had the greatest year a filmmaker has ever had, got had the highest grossing film of all time and won all of the Oscars in the same year. Uh, where else can you go besides starting a studio? And then over the course of, I guess, I guess it took about a decade or so for it to finally, finally melt down, didn't it? Maybe they shouldn't have started with The Peacemaker. I think that was it. <laughs> <laughs> but at least they can always, they, they'll always remember that they ended with Just Like Heaven. So at least, <laughs> at least they ended with a bang. Yep. Stuck the landing, as you said. All right, Matt, this was good. Interesting. Interesting time in his career. Next, we'll be going on to another batch of pretty interesting movies. And I'll tell you what, we're kicking it off with Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, a movie I have not seen since the year it came out. Oh, really? And I am pretty fucking excited to watch that movie. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to wander in the wilderness for a little while. And uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is a perfect kickoff to the next uh, confusing chapter in this guy's oeuvre. Yeah, two of these five movies uh, nominated for Best Picture. A lot of lot of awards uh, for visuals and stuff. So, I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's a pretty fruitful time. All these movies made money. Some made a lot of money. It's interesting. I guess that's it. Until next time, when we get to the sixth part of our now eight-part series, <laughs> Spielberg oeuvre. We need to slow down, and he needs to speed up, because I never want this thing to end. <laughs> I kind of feel, I, honestly, like I kind of feel like George Clooney in uh, Up in the Air. Yeah. And this this series is kind of like my Vera Farmiga. Every now and then, we kind of just we just meet up. You know, the Spielberg series and I, we just meet up in a hotel room somewhere, and it's wonderful and it's romantic. And but one of these days, when when we get around to the eighth episode, it's going to be like Clooney finding out that she's been married the whole time, and it's all going to be over. And I'm just I'm just not ready to have my heart broken like that. I want these trysts. To keep going, Oscar. What, what am I going to do with myself when this is over? Once, once we're done with Vera Farmiga, we'll find another, find another lady to have trysts with. Fair, fair enough. Yeah, if you guys have any suggestions for what our next oeuvre should be, I mean, we'll start taking those at WeLikeMovies at gmail.com, right, Matt? WLMPodcast at gmail.com. Oh, fuck. I don't even know our own email. <laughs> it's okay. That's bad. Uh, <laughs> WLMPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at you know backslash WLM podcast you can like us there more fun stuff at uh, we like movies.com and uh, thank you for being part of this journey with us we appreciate you all right until next time so we like movies say goodbye man goodbye